John chapter 10, our text will be verses 31 to 42. We will finish up the chapter this morning. The Apostle Peter tells us in 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 3, Seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence, the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, that All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. The Scripture gives us all that we need to know for faith and life. It is our sole rule for faith and life. Everything that we need to know about God, about Christ, about man, about salvation, everything is contained in the Scripture. We teach from it. We correct from it. We train ourselves and others by it. It is the revelation of God to us. God has disclosed Himself through the pages of sacred Scripture. We defend the hope that is within us from the Scripture. And there's an emphasis here as to why I'm pointing these things out. Because there's a tendency today that when we encounter certain opposition or we encounter critics. That we, we leave the authority of Scripture and, and adopt something else to try to give an answer. Instead of the, the Word of God being our authority and our defense, some will appear, appeal to other things because the difficult issues that arise within certain passages. Others will abandon the Old Testament text altogether. Have you ever heard of people saying, well, we're a New Testament church or I'm a New Testament Christian? They abandon the Old Testament to avoid the certain issues that are there, the difficult things that are raised by critics. Some will altogether abandon the inspiration of the Old Testament to avoid the, the difficult issues. And this may surprise you, some of you may know. But one in particular that has done this very thing was C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis, on his reflection of the Psalms, as you work your way through that little book concerning the Psalms, when he gets to the imprecatory Psalms, where God is rendering judgment and, and, and delivering this judgment through the people of God, he himself will say that this is not inspired, this is what the author is saying, but there is truth contained here. He had abandoned the inspiration of Scripture when he had went into that realm Abandon the infallibility of Scripture, the inerrancy of Scripture. Others follow suit with the same ideas as C.S. Lewis, especially considering the issues that we find ourselves today, that the church faces, of the issues of sexual immorality, of abortion, and other things. Well, we have to ask ourselves this. Do we trust that the Scriptures are sufficient to give us a defense when it comes to the hope that is within us? Do we trust our Lord that His Word is sufficient for faith and life? Do you trust that? When it comes to certain issues that you face in your own life, when it comes to issues that are raised by people that you know that are unbelieving, to what do you run to? What do you trust in in order to give an answer? Our Lord has provided all that we need to know here. And indeed, His Word is sufficient for faith and life. Our Lord is indeed the all-knowing, all-wise God who reveals Himself fully in the person of Christ. 
And it's in the life of Christ that we see the wisdom of God putting to shame the wisdom of man. And the way that Christ primarily does that, when you're looking at Christ and His interaction with His critics, He is appealing to Scripture. He is appealing to the authority of God's Word for His defense. And we shouldn't take that very lightly because this is the incarnate God who is appealing to His own Word in order to give an answer to His own critics. He exposes the foolishness of men by the Scripture. But He, he demonstrates when He does that the importance of Scripture and, and the importance that it should have within our lives. The honor that we should give to it. And in our passage, that's exactly what we see our Lord Jesus doing. He is encountering His critics. They are once again going to try to kill Him because of the words that He says. But His answer to them is... Scripture. He once again appeals to Scripture. He's, he's bold. He's courageous in the face of even death. And his emphasis is on the authority of the Word of God. Now in this passage, of course, we see a number of things. There's always a number of things to look at. And, and, and it's very difficult to try to hit everything when you're moving through a passage of Scripture. But once again, the deity of Christ is put on display for us. The darkness of men's hearts are put on display for us once again. And yet the glory of Christ shines forth even in, in the midst of that. To where not only do you see this opposition to Christ. And you see this anger and the bitterness towards Him. The darkness of men's hearts being displayed there. But you also see the light of Christ penetrating the hearts of others. And them coming to faith. Which gives us. This, which establishes rather this truth once again that no matter what happens within the kingdom of men, it never has any impact on the kingdom of Christ. Ever. No matter what things that the world tries to do in order to hinder the gospel or to hinder the Christian people, there is nothing that will ever hinder the kingdom of Christ. Ever. Our Lord will be vindicated. He will vindicate His people. His wisdom will always silence foolish men. And you see that here in our Lord Jesus. You see our Lord's commitment to His Father. His trust in His Father. And in this we should also take courage and follow example. That we trust God. That we trust Him with the answers to, to all of the issues that we face. That we trust in His Word to give us a solid foundation of truth. And it's vital that we understand, also we see in there, that it is vital that we understand the importance of knowing the full counsel of God and not just partial Scripture over here, a little bit of Scripture over here, but that we understand and we seek to know the full counsel of our Lord so that we can see the complete revelation of God. We can see how everything fits together. We can see the agreement that there is between the old and the new from how God has revealed Himself from the old into the new. There is agreement in all of that. And we should see as well in this passage that we shouldn't miss the importance of the declaration of God's Word in your particular life. The emphasis that it should have in your life in order to influence the lives of others. You'll see what I mean when, as we work our way through this. But as we move through this passage, may our hearts rejoice in God's faithfulness that is put on display for us here. Our hearts should rejoice in His wisdom and the vindication of Himself. 
Rejoice in His gracious act of revealing Himself in the Scripture to which we hold in our hands even now. He has given us a solid foundation of truth to give a reason of the hope that is within us to all of our critics, all of our opponents, all the enemies of God. May Christ be magnified indeed in our hearts today. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 10, verses 31 to 42. This is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words of the living God. And let us hear the words of the living God. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Jesus answered them, Has it not been written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming, because I said I am the Son of God? If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works, so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I in the Father. Therefore they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing, and he was staying there. Many came to him and were saying, While John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true. Many believed in him there. Let's pray together. Gracious God and our Father, truly You are all-knowing, all-wise. As the Apostle Paul says, the foolishness of God is wiser than men. Father, we thank You that indeed You vindicate Your name, that You vindicated Your Son, that You have established Your Word as the rule of authority in our lives concerning all that we need to know and understand and and to give us a defense, a reason of the hope that is within us, that your wisdom will be put on display in our lives, in the things that we say and how we approach opponents of the living God. Father, help us this day to understand this passage as best as we can. We pray that you would apply it to our hearts, that the Spirit of God would stir within us these wonderful truths that we read of today that He would give us the power to apply it, to rejoice in it, to have great confidence in You. Father, we pray that You'd bless the preaching of Your Word, that it would accomplish all You desire. May Christ be magnified in our hearts today. May Your name be glorified among Your people. In Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's children said, Amen. Please be seated. Chapter 10 has no doubt been an amazing chapter, one that many of us hold dear. Some of the wonderful sayings of Jesus ring, ring within our hearts as we, as we hear it read, as Jesus is the, the good shepherd, as he is the door. Many things that Jesus has been saying about himself uh, only magnifies his nature and his character as our great shepherd, our great king. 
who cares for His people, who provides for His people. We had first began in this chapter of understanding that you, you had this, this analogy that Jesus was using in those first five verses. This figure of speech is what He refers to it. Of like everybody being in the, the community fold of the sheep. And Jesus as the shepherd standing outside the community fold and He's calling His people out. And then He switches as you work your way through there to not only be standing outside of the community sheepfold, but now this is more like the, the sheep in the wilderness and, and he, has, he has provided walls of protection for them and it is He who stands as the gate to enter into the sheepfold of God. He says, he says some amazing things, some comforting things uh, in these passages here where He says that I am the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd lays down His life for the sheep. He speaks of the intimacy of, of knowing His sheep. He says, I am the Good Shepherd and I know my own and my own know Me. Even as the Father knows Me and I know the Father and I lay My life down for My sheep. He has said some amazing things about understanding and knowing His sheep in the sense of that intimate, that intimate love that He has with them. That intimate knowledge that He has with them. He knows you. And He calls His sheep. And His sheep hear His voice and they follow Him. He says to the religious leaders, you do not believe because you are not of My sheep. We talked about that. All of those things that we had, had went over there expressing the effectual calling of God in, in our hearts. That the, in the, that the calling of God that He makes to us achieves its desired purpose that He calls and we answer. That, that knowledge of God that He has for His own. And he says there in verse 30 to express even more so of his, of his character and his nature, of his being, of who he is. He sums all of this up and he says that I and my father are one. Now, at this point, the Jews are going to take up stones in order to stone him for blasphemy. What exactly did he say? And we, this is what we went over last week. He spoke of him working, his father working. He says that he preserves his own, that the father preserves his own. And then he says that I and the father, in the text it says, I and the father, we are one. We talked about this, that they are indeed one in will. They are one in agreement in everything that they do. But there's something else that Jesus was pointing out here that the Jews understood very clearly the, 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 what he was saying. He said, I and the Father are one. This is not in the masculine. He is not saying that I and the Father, we are one person. Rather, this is in what's called the Greek neuter. This is a thing. This is, this is Him saying that I and the Father, we are one. And the implication there is one essence, one substance. He made a direct claim of deity when He said that I and the Father are one. They are one in essence. The very essence of God. The thing that makes God, God. The fullness of that essence, the Son has. The Holy Spirit has. The Father has. Yet there's only one God. He maintains that truth that they are one and that there is only one God throughout other passages of Scripture. And we looked at Deuteronomy 6.4 when you have the Shema, when he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That Hebrew word is echad, is compound nature. 
the Lord our God, the Lord is compound nature. This is expressed more fully in the New Testament, especially in the words of Jesus and passages like this, where Jesus would affirm that he and the Father are one in essence, one in substance. He's, he's expressing an equality with God when he says that I and the Father, we are one. And in light of that, the response of the Jews is they are going to pick up stones to stone him. Now, they are going to do this for the charge of blasphemy. And indeed, when you look in the Old Testament and the law books of Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, there are passages there that give them the, the, the occasion in order to uh, stone others, to put them to death. One was witchcraft. The other was idolatry or immorality. If you violated the Sabbath and that of blasphemy. Now, they are very quick to charge Jesus with blasphemy and not to take into account anything else that he has said, not any of his other claims that he has said, not to take into account all the miracles that he's been doing, which affirm the truth of what he is saying. And understand that, that the miracles that Jesus was doing was not just to put people in awe, to have them look at this and say, oh, wow, that is so amazing that he can do that. The miracles were, were to, to vindicate him to establish the truth of who he claimed to be so that they would listen to his words. It is the words of Christ that are more important than the miracles that he did. It is in his words. It is as, as the disciples would say, you have the words of life. It is it is the way that the Lord has worked all through the scripture whenever one was raised up in order to to preach to the people, to be a prophet to the people, he would, the Lord would accompany them with signs and miracles and wonders in order to authenticate the messenger. It was never commonplace to have miracles to be done in any of that, but it was to authenticate the messenger when new revelation of God was being given. Here you have the fullest revelation of God, which is Christ Jesus, who is God incarnate. And of course, his miracles are going to be even more extraordinary than any that came before him in order to authenticate the words of which he says. That they would pay attention to his words. They don't take into account any of that. They have desired for a while to put him to death. They're looking for any reason in order to charge him. And here they, have, they seem to have found a good reason to stone him and to charge him with blasphemy. But when you look at the life of Christ, and again, they're not paying attention to any of that. Everything that Jesus says is in absolute agreement with the Old Testament Scripture. Every act that Jesus did. Now, you remember this. He is God in the flesh, and so His interaction with sinners is a demonstration of God's disposition towards all men. There is a kindness of God that extends to all persons. And you see that in the life of Christ. There is nothing that Jesus ever did, that Jesus ever said, that contradicted anything that was revealed about the nature or character of God in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament. Everything he did was in full agreement. <clears throat> he had been revealing the very nature of God in, in, in everything that he said, every act that he performed. But they don't care. They're not concerned about that. We saw that back in chapter 9 whenever he had healed the man who was born blind. 
They only sought to discredit Him because He threatened their position. He threatened their authority. He exposed them to be hypocrites. They wanted rid of Him. And so here's their chance. Let's charge Him with blasphemy. Let's pick up stones to stoning. And the reason being, you being a man, make yourself out to be God. They understood very clearly what He was claiming of Himself when He says that I and the Father, we are one. Not just one in agreement. Not just one in, in, in their will. He was making, a, again, a direct claim about Himself as far as His being. They understood that He was making a claim to deity. He and the Father were one. Now, they're, they're basing their actions on what the Old Testament had said. In these certain instances is when you render this judgment. But they are completely ignoring the other passages of Scripture, especially those that describe the Messianic age. What they said about the Messiah, the Old Testament passages. There are passages, of course, in the Old Testament, in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, which speaks of the eternality of the Messiah. That, that, speaks, of his, uh, that speaks of His nature in Isaiah chapter 9, that He's the mighty God, that He's a descendant of David. That the Messianic age would be characterized by the blind seeing, the deaf hearing, the mute speaking. All of that that we find in Isaiah. And all those things that, that, that were foretold of the Messianic age are all happening. They're living in the time in which all of this is happening. Blind are receiving the sight. The, the, many, many with other infirmities are being healed. The, the lepers are being cleansed. All of these things are going on and the religious leaders know this very clearly. And they cannot discredit it as they couldn't with the blind man. And instead of looking at this and seeing that these are characteristics of the Messianic age, perhaps this man is who he claimed to be. Instead, they, only, they want to ignore all of that, ignore all the passages of Scripture or all the truth that is contained in the Old Testament concerning the Messiah and focus on this one thing to give them a reason in order to put him to death. And this is where it is absolutely necessary as we were talking about at the beginning, to understand and to know the full counsel of God. They're only choosing bits and pieces here in order to try to vindicate themselves of their actions or what they intend to do. They want to put Him to death simply because they don't like what He's saying. You know, it's so amazing to me how in our own culture we have this fascination with with uh, these fictitious people who do these amazing things. I mean, how many superhero movies are there? Who They have uh, these, these characters that can do all sorts of these extraordinary acts and all of that, and people are just put in awe by it. Oh, how amazing that would be! You know, regardless of what superhero you pick. But when you have somebody who truly came on the scene, who could do extraordinary acts, instead of being in awe by him, they hated him because of the truth that he proclaimed. That's what our culture would do as well. Anytime that the light exposes the darkness, exposes men's deeds, exposes men's hearts for who they truly are, all that ensues thereafter is anger and violence. How quick they are to, to try to put him to death 
again. This isn't the first time. It's not even the second time that they've tried this. But they try it again, of course. He makes himself out to be God. You know, if there was a person who made themselves out to be God and could do some of these extraordinary things, you might want to pay attention to it. But not them. Why? Because they are enemies of God. And enemies of God will always act in this way. Because men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. That is made very clear by our Lord Jesus and made very clear by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8 that the, the man who is, who is fleshly cannot even subject himself to the law of God. He's not even able to do so. He's an enemy of God. And the enemies of God will, will always respond with anger, with bitterness, with resentment, with, with slanders towards you because of the truth that you proclaim concerning who they are, the true nature of things, the reality of Christ. Anything else you can pick from Scripture there. Now what is our Lord's response? What is His defense? Instead of manifesting His deity even more, He could have just said, let me just show you that I am, am God in the flesh. Let me just do this thing before you that you can understand very clearly who I am and how you ought to pay attention to me. He could have done anything that He wanted in order to have established that very truth. They're standing in the portico of Solomon. What things could He have done in order to manifest His deity even more so that they would know very very clearly, this, this man may be who he claimed to be. He doesn't do that. He could have upheld the, the, the covering of Solomon's portico there by his own power. He could, have, he could have done a number of things. But he didn't. The very thing that Jesus did was to go back to Scripture. And in doing so, he places it at, at a great place of honor that we should very, very well take note of. What does he do in order to answer his critics? He's standing there. The, this crowd has rushed in on him, as we found out last week. They're pressing in upon him. He says that he's God. They take up stones. And instead of cowering back, instead of just moving on out, he stands there boldly, Trusting in His Father that His hour has not yet come. This is not going to be the means by which He dies because He already said previously that He is going to give His life on behalf of His sheep. He's not going to die as a martyr. He's not going to die as an example. He's going to die in the place of others. And it's not going to be by this, this way. And so He stands boldly. He stands courageously. And the answer that He gives is the Word of God. He appeals to the Word inspired by the Holy Spirit, inspired by God, the very words of God that are breathed out by God. This is what he appeals to. He asks this question, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? That's very bold. He doesn't say, now wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's talk about this. Which are you going to stone me for? You made yourself out to be a man. Here's his answer. Has it not been written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, it cannot be unbound, it cannot be destroyed. 
Do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God. Now, what is he saying here? What is he appealing to here? Well, obviously he's appealing to the Old Testament. He's appealing to the Psalms. Psalm 82. Let's look at that. Psalm 82. <clears throat> Let's look at and see what, what this psalm is about here. <clears throat> we'll read a little bit of it. In Psalm 82, beginning verse 1, look at the scene. See what's happening. God takes His stand in His own congregation. He judges in the midst of the rulers. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah. Vindicate the weak and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, and all of you are sons of the Most High. Nevertheless, you will die like men and fall like any one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for it is you who possesses all the nations. Now, when Jesus quotes this, Jesus is quoting from the Greek Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Now, why is he, why is, why is he quoting this? He's quoting this, one, to demonstrate that there are others within the Scripture who are just mere men that have that title applied to them. Now, theologians differ on this. Some rabbinic traditions would look at Psalm 82 and see that uh, the, the Lord is, is addressing the whole congregation of Israel at Mount Sinai when He had led them out and now He's establishing the law, but then they made the golden calf. Others see this as, as God's rebuke of the unjust judges of Israel, that they were not judging righteously. They were being unfair. But any way that you go, the Lord is calling them gods. Elohim in Hebrew, or Theoi in, in Greek. He's calling them gods. These are mere men that have this title applied to them. Now, why is he calling them gods? Well, one, they're his representatives. They're standing in his place, judging his people by his law. And so they are his representatives rendering judgment. And so he refers to them in that way. Now, Jesus's point is to say this, that in that psalm, mere men are called gods. Mere men are called sons of the Most High. So in light of that, Jesus is using this to say, if God called them gods and the scripture cannot be broken, why do you say that I'm blaspheming? Because I said I'm the son of God. The Old Testament called mere men gods and sons of the Most High. Why are you going to accuse me of blaspheming? Because I said I'm the son of God. And he even elevates himself to a higher status than those that were being referred to in that psalm. They didn't accuse God of, of uh, blasphemy because He called mere men gods. He didn't, they didn't accuse Asaph, who wrote the psalm, of committing blasphemy because he applied that title to mere men. 
But why are they going to accuse Jesus of blasphemy? Because he says that I am the son of God using very same language, similar language as to what was in Psalm 82. Think of the wisdom of our Lord Jesus that's put on display here. This is his word. He obviously knows it because he is the all knowing God. Any time that this this opposition came or these critics came and they said, you're blaspheming. Let's go to this obscure psalm over here and let me show you that by your own law, what you say to uphold says the very same thing. And yet you don't say anything about anybody else blaspheming. Why are you accusing me of it? Again, you think of how the Apostle Paul says that the foolishness of God is wiser than men. This is written in their law. He uses law in a very general sense to include the Psalms. But he affirms a number of things here. That the scripture cannot be broken. That he has a greater status than even those that were referred to in the psalm. Because he is the one who is sanctified by the Father. He is consecrated by the Father. He is set apart by him. And he is the one who has been sent into the world. The unjust judges of Israel were raised up by the Lord in order to judge righteously. But they are in no comparison to our Lord Jesus. Our Lord Jesus, as he had just affirmed, is one in essence with the Father. He is indeed God. And so he uses the scripture to give his defense. He gives a great place of honor to the scripture. His very word. Now you think of that again. Here's our Lord Jesus, who's God in the flesh. He doesn't appeal to anything else or any other power that he can do. Because he can do anything. Anything that is consistent with his nature, he can do. But he doesn't do any of that. Instead, he appeals to the word of God. Demonstrating the inspiration of the Old Testament. Demonstrating the authority of the Old Testament. The infallibility of it. The sufficiency of it. Which we need to take notice of. We like to focus in a lot on just the New Testament aspects of things. And granted, the, the nature of God is made more fully known within the New, the New Testament and all of that. And we tend to write off the Old. Or we tend to put this big wedge in between the Old Testament and the New and the way that many people have done that is they, they just they relegate everything of the Old Testament to, well, that's under the law. We're not under law, we're under grace. So we just focus in on the New Testament. No one else within the Scripture ever looked, like, like, looked at the Old Testament in that way. Instead, what did they see? They saw a complete agreement concerning the revelation of God from the Old into the New. The Bible that Jesus carried or the Bible that the apostles were preaching from and all of that, that was the Old Testament. This is where all these amazing truths that we write of or we read of and all these sermons in the New Testament, this is where we're coming from. And what does Jesus do? The scripture cannot be broken. I didn't come to abolish the law. Not one jot or tittle of the law is going to pass away. One of the greatest expositions of the Old Testament law is the Sermon on the Mount. It is authoritative. It is sufficient. It is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And the idea that this is law and this is grace, that's nonsense. 
The God of grace has always been. How were they saved in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant? They were saved by grace through faith, never by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be saved is what the writer of Hebrews makes very clear. The blood of bulls and goats did not save anyone. But in Hebrews chapter 9, it does make that statement that what Jesus had accomplished was not only for those to whom He was presently there with as far as that generation, but for those who came before. Everything centered on the cross. They were saved by grace through faith in the coming Redeemer. We're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, just as they were. Grace has always been, even in the Old Covenant. From the time of Genesis 3.15, you see the institution of the covenant of grace. Every subsequent covenant that comes thereafter is just revealing more of the covenant of grace until you have Christ fully coming on the scene. There's no, there's no divisions here. It is one revelation of God from Genesis to Revelation. And so we should approach it that way. We should see its importance of studying the Old Testament just as much as we do in the New. Because it's through those Old Testament passages, whether it's a narrative, whether it's one of the historical books or whatever, that you see the grace of God being manifested even more so throughout the account or throughout the circumstance or throughout whatever else is going on. The nature of God and the character of God are put on display in all passages of Scripture. And we can learn and we can grow and we can come to appreciate our Lord even more so. And to depend upon even passages in the Old Testament in order to be our defense when it comes to critics and opponents. Jesus relied on His Word. How much we ought to rely on it too. We have a tendency so much to, to seek out other things. When God has given us everything that we need to know in the Scripture, it is the rule for faith and life. Everything that we need to know concerning the very nature of God or the character of God or that of Christ, what we need to know about ourselves, what we need to know about salvation, or pick any other topic, the things that we need to know are found within the pages of sacred Scripture. It is our solid foundation of truth. It is our weapon against the enemy. And you think of that as well. Not only is Jesus quoting Scripture to His opponents to silence them, but what did He do to the great enemy? Satan, when He was tempted by Satan. He could have just snapped His fingers, move along. He didn't do that either. What did He do? He quoted Scripture back to Satan. There is a great need for the people of God. To have confidence in the Word of God. To trust in the Word of God. To understand the sufficiency of it in our lives. To understand the, the authoritative nature of the Word of God over us. Over all of life. And, and the joy that we should have in order to, to read and to study and to learn more of who our Lord is. This is how our Lord has chosen to reveal Himself to us. Through the Scripture. Every passage that you come to, what does it say concerning God? And we grow from it. We, we, we grow in our appreciation. We grow in our adoration. And, and we grow in our preparation of the time in which we need to use it. 
we shouldn't disregard the Word of God. We shouldn't cast it off to the side or relegate it to something of less importance than other things. This is the inspired and errant Word of God to you. So Jesus uses it as His defense. But He, he says this as well. Now, let me say this as a, as a footnote there, because this is during the Feast of Dedication, or Hanukkah, that we talked about that in 167, during the time of, of the, when, when Antiochus IV, when he was over Israel, that he had desecrated the temple. He was trying to spread the, the Greek culture and all of that, so he made laws in order to stop the worship of God. You read all that in Daniel. But in 167, there was a revolt. They pushed the Syrians out. And they rededicated the temple and they consecrated the temple. And here you have Jesus using language of himself that he is the one to whom God consecrated and sent into the world. And Jesus makes the claim elsewhere that one is that one is, is here who is greater than the temple. He is the one who is the consecrated place of worship there clothed in human flesh. The one sent into the world. He says this, though, if I do not do the works of my father, do not believe me. If the things that I'm saying or the things that I'm doing is not consistent and in agreement with everything that has been revealed before, don't believe me. There's a good challenge there that he is making to them. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I in the father. Now, he's not saying that your salvation is based on whether or not you believe the works that he's doing. But the works that he is doing is, is, is cause for reflection upon who he is. That's, that's the point. If you don't believe me, at least consider the things that I'm doing. Who else can do the things that I'm doing? Let that be reflecting upon you. Perhaps it would lead into a greater response to the things that he has said, the things that he has preached, the things that he has declared. And this is a genuine appeal on the part of Christ. Now, we talk about a lot about the necessity of the effectual calling of God, of the necessity of the regenerating work of God in order to bring people to faith, all of that. And this doesn't contradict anything like that, but you do see something here that we often neglect is a genuine call to repentance. This isn't Christ just, well, believe. He is truly appealing to them. If I do these works, though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand this. This is a, a genuine appeal on the part of our Lord Jesus. Now, are there some within that, that group, perhaps, who who are of the elect of God, we don't know. But what we do read of in Acts chapter 15 is that some of the sect of the Pharisees believed. They came to faith. Some. But in any event, there should be on our part as well a genuine appeal to the lost to be saved. A genuine call for them to repent and to trust in God. To trust in Christ. There should be on our part. 
to tell sinners, we beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. A seeking to persuade them that they would come. Now, obviously, we know that it's only in the sovereign hand of God. We know that only God can bring someone to faith. But on your part, your part is this, that you are called to be an ambassador of our Lord Jesus Christ and to preach the message of reconciliation that others would come. Now, after he makes this, what else happens here? As he has backed them in a corner, as he has used Scripture in order to make his defense, Scripture that they should have known as they're experts in the law and all of that, what then is their response? Therefore, they were seeking again to seize him. And he eluded their grasp. They were already angry with what he said, already bitter at what he said about himself. And now they want to seek him all the more because of how he just made them look foolish again. Why? Because his defense was the word of God, the very thing that they claimed to know, that they claimed to adhere to, and he used the word of God to make his defense. And now they're even more angry. So they seek to lay hands on him again. And we read this again. That he eluded their grasp. Throughout that whole ordeal, he's trusting in his father. He's having confidence in his father. This is not the way in which he will make atonement for the sins of his people. He will not die in this way. He entrusted himself to him who judges righteously. This is not his time as hour had not yet come. And so he eludes their grasp. And he goes away beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing. It's like he's, he's coming full circle here. Because the place beyond the Jordan where John was first baptizing is the place in which we first encountered John in this gospel. It is where the, the religious leaders had come to John and they're like, are you the Messiah? Are you the prophet? Who are you that we can go back and tell the leaders? This is the place in which John, when he sees our Lord Jesus walking and he points him out and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Our Lord is coming full circle because most of his public ministry is now going to end. It's winter. He's a few months away from his passion. So he goes to the place where John was first baptizing. And again, we have an emphasis here on, on the word of God. Why? Because many were saying, while John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true. Many believed in him there. Even after John's death, the very things that he had preached, the very things that he had said, the word of God that he had proclaimed to the people was now being applied to the hearts of the people, even after he was gone. He didn't need to do any signs. That was not the emphasis of John's ministry. There was no need for them because the importance of who he was and what he did was what he proclaimed about Christ. His declaration was much more important than any miracle he could have done. You think of what he preached. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Obviously, he preached more than that. But what did he preach? He was preaching what was revealed about the Messiah, what was revealed about the Lord, according to the Old Testament. 
He is preaching the Word of God. And in light of that, people are coming to faith. Because at this time is when we could look at the whole scenario and understand that it's the Spirit of God now applying the preaching of John to the hearts of the people. The truth that John was proclaiming, God's truth, is now being applied to the people. He performed no sign. Yet everything he said about this man was true. Jesus comes on the scene, the things that Jesus says, everything that John said was true concerning him. The Spirit of God bringing back to their remembrance what they had heard from John. What John had declared to them. That the, the Word of God that was proclaimed. The Word of God that was greater than miracles. More important than miracles. Understand this. Because a lot of, a lot of Christians today want to seek after miracles. They want to seek after signs and all of that. There was no miracle and no sign that brought people to faith. And you see that within the pages of Scripture. Everything that Jesus did. Before the religious leaders, for example, didn't produce any faith in them. The very thing that produces faith is when the Holy Spirit applies the gospel, the message of Christ, of who he is and what he did to their hearts. That is what brings people to faith. Nothing else. And John's declaration of the Lord Jesus that he was the lamb takes away the sin of the world. He was greater than him, wasn't even worthy to untie the, the thong of his sandals. The greatness of Christ, how grand and majestic that he was. All the things that were proclaimed by John is now being applied to the hearts of the people. The word of God is greater than miracles. It is more authoritative than any sign. Any, any miraculous thing that could happen. It is the means, the instrument that God uses to bring his people to faith. We shouldn't try to dazzle people with, with uh, these great signs and wonders or whatever. But we should try to seek to persuade people by the gospel. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Just as the Apostle Paul says. That is the instrument that God uses to bring his people to faith. Not miracles, not signs, not any of that other stuff. It is the word of God. What you should be proclaiming. Is the gospel. And what is the gospel? Very simply put. As Todd Friel points out. The gospel is. Jesus died for sinners. How simple is that? The sum total of the gospel is. Christ. It's all about Christ. Who he is. What he did. The gospel is not inviting people to church. It's not your testimony. It is the message of Christ. It's all the message of Christ. It's all about Him. We're not part of the gospel. He's the sum total of the gospel. And that is more important to declare than anything else. It is more authoritative than anything else. You think of this. You think of Acts chapter 18, for example. I think Paul is, Paul's in Corinth. And so he had went into the synagogue. He's preaching in the synagogue. They pretty much run him out. And so what does Paul do? He shakes the dust off his feet and he says, 
Your blood be on your own head. I'm going to the Gentiles. But then he has this, this vision by the Lord. And the Lord says, don't be afraid. Keep on preaching for I have many people in this city. And you think to yourself, how does he have many people in this city? He just got here. They just ran him out of the synagogue. What does he mean? But when we understand the, the sovereignty of God and, and, and all of that, how, how, you know, how God has is, is chosen His elect before the foundation of the world, and we look at passages like that, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, that the, it, it, was, it was needful for the Apostle Paul to keep preaching in Corinth because that was the means that God uses to bring His people to faith. Paul could have done any kind of miracles in any of that, but he didn't. His message, his, the most important thing that he did, now he did do miracles, but the most important thing that he did was what he proclaimed about Christ. That same message that he proclaimed that the Lord used to bring people to faith, the message of John, the message of the other apostles, and when they went out into the world and the things that they were proclaiming about Christ is the same message that you have. You tell people the same thing that they were telling people. Jesus died for sinners. That is more grand and majestic than, than any extraordinary act that could be done. Jesus died for sinners. He lived a life that you couldn't. Because God demands absolute perfection. You can't do it. I can't do it. Any time that we try, we've already failed. Because God is holy. He demands absolute perfection to come into His presence. And when... That is not happening because we are imperfect and His holiness cries out for justice. And so our Lord Jesus lives the perfect life, actively fulfilling the law of God. He does it. He's declared righteous. He's declared perfect. And then He goes to the cross to endure our punishment. The sins that you have committed, the sins that I have committed... All the evil thoughts, all the bad things that we think, all the bad things that we've said, the, the actions that we have done against others, Christ takes sin upon Himself. He is punished by His own Father. The intense hatred and wrath of God for sin is poured out upon Christ. And Christ satisfies the justice of His Father for you. And then He rises again three days later, demonstrating His power and authority over death. His victory over, over the enemy. And by a gracious act of God, He allows us to participate in that too. He lived the life that you couldn't. He endured the wrath of God for you. And He rose again to demonstrate His power and authority. So that through faith, His righteousness is imputed to you as if you had done it. Your, your, your debt is wiped clean. Because Christ paid for it on the cross. And now, through faith, through that message of the gospel, we're privileged to come into the presence of God. To know Him. To be loved by Him. To have relationship with Him. To be called sons of the Most High. Children of God. All this through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Your message is no different than anyone else's. It is the gospel. 
your authority over faith and life is the scripture. Your defense to your critics and opponents is nothing else but the scripture and the truth of God that is contained here. Now, people may say, well, you're just using circular reasoning. You're using the scripture to, to defend the scripture. And it's like, maybe you should explain to them that there are 66 books here. That there's not just one. If I quote Peter to support Paul, I got two different authors, two different letters that just happen to be contained in the same volume. It's not circular reasoning. And regardless, even if it was, it's still the truth of God. So that's still what we proclaim. Don't, don't ignore all of Scripture. All of Scripture is for you to know and understand your God. Your great Savior and King. We should thank God for it daily. And thank our Lord that He is indeed all-wise and all-knowing. And that at His appointed time, He will vindicate His name. And in the time that He does that, it will be a time of great terror for His enemies. As our Lord says in Psalm 73, Surely you set them in slippery places, you cast them down to destruction, how they are swept away by sudden terrors. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, and terror will indeed strike their hearts when our Lord's time comes. He will vindicate His name. He will vindicate you. In the meantime, understand that He is faithful. He is trustworthy. Have confidence in Him and have confidence in His Word. This is your rule for faith and life. Do not depart from it. Let's pray together. Gracious God and our Father, we thank You for all that You are, all that You've done for us. We thank You for the revelation of Your Word, which teaches us even more of who You are. You are holy, holy, holy. You are not just holy. You're not just holier. You are the holiest of all. And yet, you have chosen to, to bring us sinful rebels into your presence. To cleanse us through the blood of your Son. And to make us your own. Adopt us into your family that we can that we can experience the privileges of what it is to be children of God. The greatest privilege of all, being able to know you. Father, we praise you for who you are and the privilege we have of knowing you. But Father, many things we encounter, great difficulties, difficult circumstances. There are various trials that we endure but help us, Father, never to depart from the truth of your word, that we would always seek your face in all things, never to depart from what we know to be true about you, but to cling to it all the more and to do as our Lord did and entrust ourselves to you who judges righteously. Help us to be bold and courageous to proclaim your word, proclaim your gospel. And we pray, Father, that you would use us. Use us to bring others into the kingdom. Use this as your instruments. And how we thank you for the privilege we have of being used by you. And we'll never cease to give you the honor and the glory for any good that's ever done. Oh, Father, work in us mightily 
bring about all that you desire in us. May we be receptive to your word. May the Holy Spirit of God apply it to our hearts. We love you because you first loved us. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's children said, Amen.